Hey, I just want to say we've had four kids. I never took a single drug, completely natural. The whole I did get some stretch marks. I'm not sure how that happened. But hey, if I were to ask you, uh, what is the most painful thing you've ever went through? Uh, some of you ladies in the room who've had children, you're thinking you, you just saw it. It just played it on the screen, right? Uh, for some, I've heard from people say that passing a kidney stone is less desirable than death itself. I've heard that's incredibly, incredibly painful. Uh, the guy who used to hunt with Dick Cheney said that getting shot in the face is pretty painful. He said that hurts. Uh, how many of you remember uh, the game Lawn Jarts? Remember, remember that game that was uh, several decades ago, right? Like that game? And like these huge darts with like this big tail fin on the back. They were red or yellow. And this dart that was this long that was put. Listen, I had safety written all over it, right? And so you would underhand throw them in the ring. And so I was about five years old and we were playing lawn jarts at my aunt's house. And the kid was playing in front of me and he decided that instead of throwing underhand, he was going to throw overhand. And as I stood behind him, it hit me in the corner of the eye and that that left a mark. I'm just going to going to leave it at that. It was incredibly painful. I heard that chasing your wife at full speed and running into a door hurts. Hypothetically, I heard that. Uh, when I was little, my uncle was at a church overnighter. And went up and dunked a volleyball and his ring got caught on the rim and it tore his finger off. He said that was a stinger. He said that hurt a little bit. Now, I don't, I don't know what was the most painful event for me, but about 15 years ago, uh, near the top of my list, though, Tosh and I were dating. And I had slept in my contacts for like two or three nights in a row. And so I remember getting up and early, you know, going to work. And I remember getting up and I thought, gosh, my eyes are just, they're irritated, they're red. And, but I'm sure that, you know, it'll go away and it'll get the sleep out of my eyes. And so as I drive to work and the sun starts to come up uh, and that light began to shine in my eyes, I was convinced that someone had switched out my saline solution with acid. I mean, it, it hurt so bad. I couldn't hardly keep my eyes open. Uh, it's a little embarrassing now, but I remember my eyes were watering so much. And uh, I remember getting a tissue and wiping and looking down because I was convinced there were going to be blood. I thought my eyeballs were bleeding. It, it just hurt so bad. And so I remember I had to pull over because I couldn't hardly hold my eyes open and pulled into a drugstore. And I had to walk into the store and I was talking to the guy like this, which was not not creepy at all. Right. And so I said, hey, can I use your telephone? And so I called uh, my, my brother-in-law, who at the time was, was 19 years old, and uh, he came and picked me up and he did what, you know, every 19-year-old does. He laughed until he couldn't talk anymore. And so the eye doctor said, Here, what happened was this. He said, you've slept in your contacts so many days now that you've actually developed ulcers on your eyes. I didn't know you could do that, but you developed ulcers on your eyes. And so when the light hits your eye, that's got the ulcer on it, it just becomes unbearable. And so that's exactly he said. Here's what he said. He said, it'll kind of feel like that someone put acid in your saline solution. I said, that's it. That's it. So here's what I remember driving home. Uh, I had to drive home with my head down near the floorboard and my sweatshirt over my face and just as much dark as possible because it hurt too bad to let any uh, light in. It was just so incredibly painful. Now, unfortunately, uh, some of you have experienced that as well. Life has brought with you some painful consequences. And the, the only thing you can do is to kind of keep your head in the darkest place possible because to lift your head and look towards the light is just it's just too painful. And so, so many times we try to, the light pierces and exposes what we've been trying to manage in the dark and painful place of light, and it just becomes too painful. And so we just keep our head down low in a dark place away 
from the light. Well, this morning we're going to start a two week series, kind of a mini series called uh, Lift Your Head. And I'm going to deal with the subject of pain and shame. Originally, when I was planning out my preaching, you know that I planned my preaching out uh, fairly far in advance. When I was planning out my preaching earlier this year, I planned our, our series Don't Quit to, to go all the way through next Sunday. However, through the course of the year and several conversations, God in his sovereignty has allowed me to, to walk with some people just, you know, in recent months and past year who have just walked through some incredibly painful things, uh, just dealing with guilt and shame and all those things. And so I just felt a genuine prompting to wrap our series up, don't quit early and to spend two weeks uh, preaching on these two tough subjects for a lot of folks with the hope simply this of bringing healing to hearts that have been broken or have been kept broken because of shame. So uh, I've heard just heard stories and stories where uh, someone will come and share something. I shouldn't be surprised this time, but someone will come and share a story that's just just I just can't believe it. That, that, that one human could be that cruel to another human being. There have been times where I just said, you know, whatever I had for the rest of the day, I just cleared off. And I just said, God, how how does this happen? And I never uh, fail to get my heart broken when the source of that pain is from a, a parent or someone else that's supposed to love someone and protect them from pain and shield them and all those things. And so I just hear this over and over and over again. Truett Cathy, uh, the founder of Chick-fil-A, asked when he had a, taught junior high boys at the same church for 45 years. And someone said, they said, you know, Truett, why, why would you teach junior high boys? And there's probably lots of business people or just lots of adults. You know, you've got a lot of influence. And so why, why would you spend 45 years teaching junior high boys? And here's what he said. He said, because I have found it is much easier to build boys than it is to mend men. It's a lot easier to build boys than it is to mend men. And what I have found is that some folks have got some pain in life. Some of it, it's been there a long time. And so we spend much of our time and energy trying to mend those people. Where in reality, sometimes they're not even sure how to pray or what to do in those periods of time. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to Psalm 17, if you haven't yet. Psalm 17. And we're going to look at a passage that really is a prayer. It really is a prayer. It's a prayer, though, that is birthed out of great, great pain. Some commentators look at this passage and they say, well, this has to be the prayer of Jesus uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this uh, they line up his characteristics on what he prayed and who he was. And some uh, would lay on the other say, no, no, this is David praying. And because David knew the pain, he was uh, you know, mercilessly chased by King Saul. And that's probably where I land in regards to context. But no matter which place you land, the principles are still going to be the same here uh, in this passage that teach us how to pray under pain. How do you even pray when life becomes so, so painful? How do you lift up your head to Jesus Christ, the light of the world, when you're in a dark, dark place and have been maybe for some time? So Psalm 17, a prayer of pain is what he says here. He says, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress concerning the works of men by the word of your lips. I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your path that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you for you will hear me, O God, incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Verse eight. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts with their mouths. They speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey. And like a young lion lurking in secret places, arise, O Lord, confront him. 
cast him down. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. This morning as we walk through this passage here, uh, it's interesting because we see this incredibly painful prayer. And, uh, and our prayer life has, has a great spectrum to it. That sometimes we're praying about things that just kind of irritate us or aggravate us or just some things we see in our own life that we want to change. And so we're saying, God, help me not to be a complainer. Help me to be grateful. And God, help me to forgive when I don't want to. Or just, you know, just some things that we get grieved by. But there's a, another passage of Scripture I was reading just this week. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 talks about this. That if that's one end of the spectrum, God, I'm just irritated by some things, so I want to pray through those. The other end of the spectrum is life becomes so overwhelming, so painful, so downtrodden, so distressed that I no longer even know how to pray through that pain. And Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says that during those times, the Spirit of God intercedes on my behalf. That the Spirit of God prays for me because I'm at the place I can't even pray. But somewhere between I'm irritated, God help me, and Spirit pray for me because I don't even know how to pray. Most folks, in my experience this, they just get to the place where they just quit praying. Like it's so painful and life is so dark and their head is so down that to lift their head and offer up a prayer to Jesus Christ, the light of the world becomes so incredibly painful to them. So they just get, get, quit praying because they're in a, in a dark place. And if you would ask me this morning... Well, what are Satan's greatest strategies and his weapons? I would tell you it's in, in two forms. Uh, one is this. It's intellectual doubt. I'm not sure if this is true. I'm not sure if God there is a God. I'm not sure there, who God is, who he says he is. So one is intellectual doubt. And the other is emotional discouragement. God, I know you're there, but I'm not sure you care. Right. And so the Satan's greatest weapons in dealing with us in those areas is to get us isolated. No longer praying, dealing with the enemy in a dark place, left to our own strength just to try and grit our teeth. But what happens is we just end up losing that word in the dark. And so I'm going to walk us through this morning in Psalm 17. Uh, he lays out for us some smooth stones to sling at the giant named pain. So four principles here in this passage of effectively praying under pain. Uh, simply, the first one is, is this. It's just cry out. Cry out. It's that simple. I love the flow of this, this uh, psalm here because so many times in poetical literature, it's not always sequential. You like read things and I'll say something and just that way in Psalms and Proverbs and it goes back and goes on another subject. Then it comes back to repeat the same thing in a different way. And so sometimes it's not sequential. But in this case, actually, he lays out this process in a sequential way. And the first thing he says here is simply this is when I come to the place of deep pain, deep darkness in my life, that the response I should have is simply to cry out to God. We walk through this and I want to spend the bulk of our time here. The psalmist begins to lay this out. And one writer said this. He said, if you skip over this and begin build everything else, he said, it's like hitting a home run with by skipping first. He said, nothing else counts if we don't come to the place of desperation, of just crying out to God and just pouring everything out there. The word cry in the original there in verse one, look what he says. He says, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. That word cry there in the original language denotes a shrill, piercing cry similar to when an animal has been attacked by his foe. So like when an animal gets attacked by another animal, when an animal gets caught in a trap, uh, or if you're at my house, when a two-year-old picks you up by the, your arms and your dog and dances around with you and you yelp, those, right? That's the sound here. He says it's like an animal that's been wounded. It's an animal that's been caught in a trap and it's just crying out, yelping in pain. That's what the psalmist is describing here should be the tone and attitude of our prayers when we're walking through a season of praying. He says, hear a just cause of the Lord as I cry out. Many of our staff and a few of our life groups are working through a book called uh, Prayer Coach. 
And he actually has a section dedicated on what it looks like to cry out. I would recommend that book to you and many of his insights there. I'm deeply indebted to. But he also uh, gleaned many of his insights from another book that was written years ago uh, called The Power of Crying Out. And so let me just share with you some highlights from each of these books on the power of crying out. Here's his description about what this looks like. He said the need to cry out is a humbling reminder of our total inability to accomplish anything significant for God. And the result of crying out is a wonderful demonstration of God's supernatural power to achieve all that is needed. Let's listen to this part. Desperate prayers invite God to show up. Not cliche prayers, not routine prayers, not half-hearted prayers, not obligatory prayers. Desperate prayers invite God to show up. As you pray, do your posture and tone of voice and intense focus say, I really mean this because you aren't praying until they do. Charles Spurgeon, years ago, the great preacher echoed this sentence when he said this. He who prays without fervency does not pray at all. And you realize this is a pattern we see over and over in Scripture where God in his sovereignty chooses to allow things into certain people's lives in Scripture. Those are uh, things that cause pain in their lives and trials and circumstances. And many times we don't see God even responding till they come to the place of crying out. Let me give you some examples in Scripture. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Here's what it says. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And that cry of help was heard from God and God sent them a deliverer. And his name was Moses, who led them out of Egypt in slavery. The Israel's rights cried out and God delivered. Uh, when Jonah was stuck in the belly of the great fish that Scripture uh, talks about, here's what we read. In Jonah chapter 2, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. He came to the place of crying out and God delivered him from the belly of the great fish. A scripture talks about in Matthew chapter 14, verse 30. Many of you know the story. Jesus is walking on the water and he invites Peter out there to join him. And so Peter starts walking out. His eyes focus on Jesus. But as soon as he takes his eyes on Jesus and begins to look at his circumstances, the waves around, he begins to sink. And scripture says in Matthew 14, 30, that Peter cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus did. And Paul's life teaches us at times we, we cry out to take away our pain, but the other times Paul's life tells us that God in his sovereignty chooses to leave the pain there to teach us something. Paul's life in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, there was a thorn in my flesh given to me. Now, there's a lot of debate, what was the thorn in his flesh? I think the text tells you what the thorn in the flesh was, because here's what it says. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. So I believe it's a false teacher. Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. But we don't learn those lessons until we come to the place of crying out. God oftentimes in Scripture never delivers until that person comes to the place where God knows they're serious and they're crying out like an animal being attacked or caught in a trap. They come broken before the Lord in their distress. I cried out. And you heard me. And sometimes he answers and delivers us. And sometimes he leaves us there just long enough so that we can finally understand that even in those times, my grace is sufficient. Look over one chapter of Psalm 18. Great passage, Psalm 18. Verses 3 through 5 describe a desperate situation. Look at verse 3. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. 
So shall I be saved from my enemies. But listen, listen to this. The pangs of death surround me. I think that's what those guys were feeling on the video there at the beginning. The pangs of death surround me. And the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surround me. The snares of death confront me. Let me give you just a little exegesis on those verses. This guy's not dealing with seasonal allergies. Do you understand that? He said, the pangs of death are upon me. I'm scared to death. I'm, I'm literally, the, you know, they're around me. I, I'm in a terrible place. And so how does God answer? Look at verse seven. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he, being God, was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled. By the, listen, listen to this. I love this verse. Listen to this. And he bowed the heavens also. And came down. Is that not what we want when we pray? That God would come down? God, I'm in a terrible place. I'm scared to death. Death is all around me. Listen, and God, he says, and God came down. This guy's in a terrible place. Verses 3 through 5 and verse 9, verses 7 through 9 says God responds in a powerful way to the point where it says God came down. So what happens between 3 and 5 and 7 through 9? Do you know what happens? It's not a trick question. Verse six happens. Okay, six is between five and seven. That's that's a whole different sermon series. All right. Look at verse six. What's it say? In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. That's exactly what happened. And so sometimes the pain remains because God wants us to bring this to the place of weakness so we can truly understand his strength. But then sometimes the reason the pain remains is because we've yet to come to the place where we're crying out. We're trying to help God. We're trying to fix it. We're trying to lean on our own resources, intellect, and I'll figure this out and I'll work out the solution. God says, no, no, the only thing you need to do is to get down on your face and cry out because then and only then will I deliver you. And so the foundation, he says... When I'm praying under pain is to cry out. Lifting our head towards the father and crying out is the foundation. But let's build on it here in this text. Three more principles of effectively praying under pain. First one is cry out. The second one is simply this. Make sure you are not the source of your pain. Make sure you're not the source here, that you're not sitting there crying out and God the whole time is going, you're bringing it on yourself. If you would ask our staff, what are the things that Pastor Brad says over and over? Like, like when, when you start hearing come out of his mouth, you, you just roll your eyes because you know what's coming, right? But th- there's some th- they would probably say this. Pastor Brad says this often. Uh, self-awareness is crucial to effective leadership. I, I tell our staff that all the time. I think they would say that I often talk about the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. I think that I would say, uh, they've heard me say many, many times, that the most important quality that any Christian can possess is a teachable spirit. Uh, But then I think they also would say that on occasion, they have heard me say something kind of along the following lines. If you are the only common denominator in all the dysfunctional scenarios in your life, it may be you. If you've gotten fired from five jobs, there may be a chance you haven't been hired by five terrible employers. It, it, It may be you. If every relationship you have ends in flames and you're the only common denominator, let me let you know a secret. It may be you. And we don't like to hear that truth, but honestly, it may be you. And so I talk just all the time. We talk about that. You say, what's it got to do with the text here? 
Listen, in verse one, it describes his crying out as a just cause. In verse two, he says, God, listen, uh, I'm your, your very presence. Come and vindicate the fact, prove the fact that this is a just cause. And then what's he say beginning in verse three? Look what he says. He says, you've tested my heart. You visit me in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. And so here in this passage, he reveals two sources that, that we allow pain to come in our lives by our own doing. And so the source, number one, is simply this, is impure motives. That sometimes the reason that, that we're seeing all these things is because the affections and motives of our heart are not honest. And sometimes the reason we cry out that God doesn't lend his ear towards us, God doesn't deliver us, because God knows the motive of our hearts is way off course. That's what he's saying in verse 3. In verse 3, when he says, you've tested my heart, you've tried me and found nothing. In the original language, it's the idea of, of precious metals being refined. And so, you know, that process when they refine gold, they heat it up and heat it up and heat it up. And what happens is all the impurities rise to the top and that's called dross. And the person doing that is that it heats up, they scrape off the dross, they heat it up and heat it up. And all the impurities come to the top and they scrape. And eventually they come to the place where they get pure gold. That's why scripture talks about God doing that in our lives, about the refiner's fires. God heats up my life, so allows trials to come in our life and it brings to the surface these impurities. And so the psalmist said, listen, God, you, you've tested me like a refiner's fire and you found nothing. He said, my motives are pure before the Lord. And so sometimes our pain comes as a result of impure motives, which he said, Lord, I'm, I'm not guilty of that. But also sometimes our pain comes from unwise actions. Look at verse four concerning the works of men, concerning my behavior by the word of your lips. I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. David said, basically, listen, Lord, there are some people who have gone astray. They've disregarded your word. I'm not one of them. I've kept my path away from them. By the word of your lips, I've tried to pattern my life after your truth, God. Now, why is this so crucial? Let me tell you why. If we cry out because we're in pain, but our pain is a result of an impure motive, then guess what? God will not lend his ear towards us. God will not in his mercy look upon our sin until we come to a place of repentance. And so we can cry out and cry out and cry out. But if I never come to the place of brokenness over my own sin, then guess what? I'm going to stay in that pain. And if I never come to the realization that, guess what? My motive was right, but, but my actions were unwise. And the result of all the pain is the consequence of unwise actions. Did you know this? Did you know that you can have a pure motive and still make an unwise decision? Do you ever do that? Anybody here ever been sincerely wrong? Yeah, I'm the only one in the room this morning, right? But sometimes the pain in my life is unwise actions, and I'm reaping the consequences of that. And Jesus promised to save us from our sins, but not always from their consequences. And sometimes we just got to walk through those. And so make sure when you cry out that you're not the source of your pain, that God can test you and find nothing. Verse three, and that you're not doing things you shouldn't do. Verse four, and you're the source of that pain. So we cry out, we do so with the confidence that the pain is not from our own undoing. But then what else do we do? We affirm the character of God. Like, I get that I'm supposed to cry out. I get that I've got to take some inventory to find out, am I, am, I, am I the source of my own pain? But when I come to a place and God searches my heart and finds nothing, when I come to a place where I can go to him with a just cause, verse 1, then what do I, what, like, what do I pray in those times? Because I'm so distraught, I'm in pain, I've been in pain so long, I don't even know what, like, I'm one step before the Spirit praying on my behalf. 
So what do I pray in those times? You affirm the character of God and who He is. You know why that is? Because every time you walk through a painful place in life, every time you navigate a painful road or a painful season in your life, one of two things will happen. You will either doubt who God is or that God cares. You you will begin to doubt if God is able. You will begin to doubt if God is willing. You say, well, is He? Well, let the text speak for itself. What's it say? Verse 6. I have called upon you for you will hear me. Oh, God, you know, what? verse six answers the question of he is willing. And this speaks of the attributes of God, like his mercy, and his loving kindness and his tenderness. And so it reminds us that these things. God, God hears our prayers and inclines his ear. He is willing. Verse six says, you say, is he able? Verse seven, show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. You know, what? listen, I, I want to destroy your theology, but God is a spirit. And those that worship, worship him in spirit and truth. You know what that means? God doesn't have a physical body like us. God is called a non-corporal being. You can write that down. You're welcome. All right. God doesn't have a right hand. So what does that mean? It's right hand is the symbolic of his authority and his power. And so when he talks about this, he's saying in verse six, he's saying, God, you, you are willing to lend your ear towards me. And then in verse 7, he says, to show your marvelous loving kindness how by your right hand you save those who trust in you from those who rise up against you. You know what verse 7 is saying? He is able. Verse 6 says, listen, you affirm the character of God. You remind yourself that God is willing, verse 6, and that God is able, verse 7. Yes, we will go through storms, but we affirm that He speaks and the winds obey even as they're crashing in around us. And in those times of darkness, if you don't affirm the character of God, you'll come to the place of doubt. See, darkness often leads to doubt. And in doubting says this, I'm not sure if he's there. And if he is, I'm not sure if he cares. And I can tell you stories of people serving in ministry, walking through seminary, who went through a dark place in their life, serving the Lord. And they just came to a place and said, God, I, I, you didn't answer and so I don't know if you're there, but if you're there, you don't care. So what do I pray when I cry out? I affirm the character of God. I love what the old preacher Vance Havner said. He said, listen, don't doubt in the dark what God's already revealed in the light. Is that not a good word? Don't doubt in the dark what God's already revealed in the light. That's exactly what happens when we get in dark places. What's the last thing you do? You cry out, take inventory of what's going on. You affirm the character of God, even in the midst where well, the waves are crashing on. You affirm the character of God. Here's the last thing. Quit trying to be so strong. Quit trying to be so strong. Some of you have heard a thousand times, God can use anyone. The Bible's filled with ordinary people that God chose to use in extraordinary ways. God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. We've said those. Listen, I believe those things, but let me add one exception to that. There is one person or type of person that God cannot use. And that person is the person who is incredibly, fiercely independent. That is the person who would rather die than ask for help, even from God. And my experience is, if we're being honest this morning, is that, guys, we struggle with this a lot more than, than the ladies do, do we not? If you're here this morning and you're sitting next to a man who would rather die than go to the doctor or the ER, would you just raise your hand? Yeah, you're listen, your intestines fell out. I'm fine. 
I just need to lay down for a minute. Give me a sandwich, right? <laughs> not fine. You're dumb. Trying to be strong is the reason we don't cry out. You know why we don't cry out? It's because our attitudes and our actions reveal that in our heart of hearts, what we really think is our own pride is God. I've got this. Verses 8 and 9 come after verse 1, but they're actually the prerequisites for verse 1 crying out. Look at what verse 8 and 9 says. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppresses me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. Let's just be honest this morning. Does verse 8 not sound like a coward? Hide me in the shadow of your wings. We, we, we equate hiding with it being a coward. But I want you to remember who's saying this. This was no coward. This was the same David who, as a young boy, took out both a bear and a lion, according to 1 Samuel 17. This is no coward. But yet he had the strength of character to, to be humble enough to say, God, hide me under your wings. That phrase is used three other times in the book of Psalms. It's describing, it's an imagery. Again, God doesn't have wings. God has some arms. But it's the imagery of a, a mother bird taking a young bird under her wings to protect him from the elements and predators and anything else that could cause harm. He said, listen, God, place me in that, in the, under your wings. Hide me there. Matter of fact, don't only hide me there. God, you go out and fight the bullies. I didn't say that. Look at verse 13. What's it say? Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down. Go beat him up, God. Deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. With your hand for men, O Lord, for men of the world who have portion their life, whose belly you fill with their hidden treasure, their satisfy their children, basically everything temporal. You know what verse 13 says? God, go beat him up for me while I hide under your wing. You know why that's important to come to that place of humility? Because at the end of the day, when the enemy's defeated, whatever it is, whatever it looks like in your life, God's the one that gets the glory, not me. No one sits back and says, look how strong I was. Look how tough I am. I just gritted my teeth through that. You know what the testimony should be? And it rocked my world. And I asked God to hide me and keep me under the shadow of his wings. And God went out and fought the battle for me. Isn't my God faithful? Psalm 46, one says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. It doesn't say he sends help. It says he is our help. Popular book, it's actually a psychology book written uh, on fear in the early 1900s has, has a story in it about a little boy who was who was scared of the dark. Anybody ever been scared of the dark or have a child or grandchild who's scared of the dark? Yeah, we, we all know what that's like. The little boy was scared of the dark. And the author writes and says, I once heard a child who was afraid of the darkness call out, Auntie, Auntie, talk to me. I'm frightened. To which his aunt replied, What good does that do? You can't see me. To which the child replied, If someone talks, it gets lighter. The psalmist said it this way, Cry out. And when you do, it'll get a little lighter. Prayer is the nightlight for our souls when we encounter the dark places of our life, is what this psalm says. And the only thing that can chase off the dark is the light.
And so my prayer for you is that when you walk through a painful season, or maybe you're in one, or maybe you've been in one for a long time, is that this really would be the light for your path on a dark road and a lamp unto your feet. Child of God, lift your head. You don't ever have to be scared of the dark again. I invite you to pray with me this morning.